You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Now we're going to jump back in. We're in this week that is the the week leading up to Jesus' resurrection. It's called the Passion Week. And it is uh, a week in this sermon series where we're taking a look each each, uh, weekend at one of the days of the week leading up to his resurrection. Today we're looking at what would have been the third day or Tuesday, and this is a jam-packed day. There is a ton of stuff that happens on this day. So we're going to hit the highlight reel and kind of camp out on some uh, specific themes or parts of the day. We're not going to be able to cover every little nugget that happens on this day, but you'll get a really good picture of how this day folded out. Now, if we remember last week, Aaron was over here and he preached about how Jesus was frustrated with the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and how they had made a shambles of the temple and they had brought in all these people who were selling goods inside the, the temple and on the temple mount and they were trying to profit from those that were coming to worship God. They were making it uh, like financially impossible for people to worship because of the restrictions that they were putting on and he turned the money tables over and he shooed people out of the temple and and it was a picture of Jesus we don't often see, like a, like a frustrated, righteously frustrated Jesus, kind of throwing down. And that sort of wrapped up the end of that day. And this next day that we're going to look at today, we pick up with Jesus right back in the temple. And as not a big surprise, the mood from the night before, it's still sort of hovering, like kind of the vibe. He's still pretty frustrated And he's going to get into some things with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he's going to start to say some things to them that are hard things for them to hear. And so we're going to pick it up in Matthew 23. It's going to be in your notes, and then it'll be up here on the screen too. Matthew 23, starting here. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What he's talking about here is a little bit of a confusing piece in the way it's translated because um, we, can, we can read it, and it looks a little bit like he's saying, they sit in Moses' seat, so you have to do what they say. But then he goes on to say all these things like everything they say and do is junk. Don't do it. And so it's like, well, which is it? Do what they say or don't do what they say? And what it, uh, a more accurate translation of what he's trying to say here is that they sit in the seat of Moses, who is the giver of the law, and it's right to do what Moses said. Moses t- gave us the law. It's right to do what Moses said. It's not right to do what they said because they do not practice what they preach. Their words and their deeds don't line up. And so he's going to continue to call out this hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It goes on like this. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues, and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. He's calling them out. He's like, They don't practice what they preach, and furthermore, everything they do, I mean, think about this coming from the words of Jesus, everything they do is done for the benefit of how people see them. How many of you brought your phylacteries today? (laughs) Dang it. Today was the day. 
Let's look, take a look at some of these pictures to give you a reference. These are tassels, um, and he's got a phylactery up there on his arm. These, these tassels and phylacteries they would wear as external adornments to try and show how holy or righteous they were. Go ahead and show those other couple pictures there. See the little boxes on their head that look really funny to us right now? Um, those little boxes would hold pieces of scripture, little scrolls with scripture written on them, rolled up and stuffed inside the box. And it was a way of externally showing people that would see them that they were spiritual, that they were pious, that they were holy, that they were, that they were righteous. It'd be a little bit like us wearing around like a suit made out of the Bible papers or something weird like, I don't know, that was a bizarre idea. <laughs> it was all about external appearances. And he is not good with what's going on. He is going to start to do something with them. From, he, he, he starts with this calling out of these hypocrisies that they don't practice what they preach. And then he's going to roll into what are known as the seven woes of the Pharisees. The seven woes to the Pharisees. Now, it's easy for us to sit in our chair where we are this morning and look back with kind of historical 2020 hindsight and look back at the, this teaching and to go, oh, look at all the ways the Pharisees got off track. Look at all the ways the teachers of the law bent things to their own advantage. Uh, and all these things that Jesus is going to say to them are hard things for them to hear. He's really kind of calling them to the carpet in a bunch of different categories. But as we go through them, I want you to, to realize that there are also all ways that we can also get off track still today. And so as we go through them, there's a spot in your notes where there's some room to write in there about the woes. If, if as we're going through them, you feel like one of those maybe res uh, resonates with you, like it clicks with you, you're like, oh, I really identify with that one. First of all, that's not good. Right? Like, that's your little Holy Spirit check button going off. Like, if one of these is clicking with you, that's maybe the Holy Spirit helping you go, hey, this is something I want you to really work on. I want you to, like, deal with this. These are not seven things that you want to identify well with. You follow me? So as we go through them, if one of them or more of them kind of stick out to you, write them down. And even if you just write number one or number two and later you go back to them, as we're going through this series of Lent, this time of Lent, those might be things that you need to talk with the Lord about. How do I put that to death in me? Like, how do I get rid of this and make room for resurrected, like more of Jesus in place of that? How do I, you know, it's a conversation you have with God. So let's go through them, keeping that in mind. The first one, says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, you yourselves don't enter, and you don't let anyone else in at, uh, either. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to paraphrase these. So these are my little modern English quick version of them as we go through them. Um, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, and you yourselves don't enter, you don't let anyone else in either. So like I talked about at the beginning, we did a lot of baptisms and youth ministry over the years and had an opportunity to talk to a lot of students over the years that were excited to commit their lives to Christ. And 
uh, our leaders would be super excited. They would invest all this time and energy with students, and they would come to us and go, man, we're so stoked. You know, uh, this little kid, this, this guy wants to get baptized, or this gal wants to get baptized. And we would say, okay, awesome. The next step is to talk with their folks, and let's get them together and make sure we got everybody on the same page and all that stuff. And I can't tell you how many times we would be so excited for these kids to come to Christ and then immediately so discouraged as we watched their parents talk to them in front of us. And we would watch as parents would basically do everything they could to discourage their son or daughter from getting baptized. Not because they didn't want their son or daughter to be a Christian, but because they, were, they thought they were doing the right thing. They, they wanted to make sure that they knew enough of the Bible and they didn't think they did. They didn't think they were like Christian enough yet. They didn't think that they were mature enough to know what they were doing yet. And they would unknowingly fall into this same thing that the teachers and the Pharisees of the law are, where they would essentially make it so hard for their own kid to get into the kingdom of heaven, they were sort of slamming the door in their face. Meaning well, but with not the right outcome. And they would fall into the same trap that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they were so committed to the letter of the law that they lost sight of the heart of the law. Let's keep rolling. The next one. You travel far to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you. Yikes. Not something you want Jesus to say about you, right? Um, He's basically saying, great, it's awesome. You go to great lengths to find people and to to make them a, a convert and a disciple of you, rabbi, teacher. But the problem is the longer they follow you, they're twice as bad at you when it comes to like excluding people from the kingdom. Like they're getting, the more of you you make, the worse they are. It's not a good thing to have said about you. Number three, you swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, but it's the temple that makes the gold sacred and the altar that makes the gift sacred. Now I'm really paraphrasing this one because it breaks it out in a little more detail in the passage and it's a little bit confusing to understand what's going on. Here's what's happening. The Pharisees would make oaths or uh, what's common for us to understand today, like swear by something or make a promise. They would make an oath and they were trying to figure out ways to twist their words or twist around their oaths so they could have some wiggle room to get out of them. And so rather than, what they were doing is, rather than swearing by the temple, they would say, well, we swear by the gold in the temple. Or rather than swearing by the altar, they'd say, well, we swore, we swore an oath by the gift on the altar. And Jesus calls them out and says, the gold apart from the temple is nothing. It's the temple that makes the gold sacred. The gift apart from the altar is nothing. It's the altar that makes the gift sacred. So he's like, you're trying to swear an oath by something that's not even the right thing. And if you're a parent, you've experienced something like this. You've experienced this, especially if you have multiple kids. We had five kids, so this was, uh, I'm an expert at discerning this. Um, It's like when your kids argue over who gets to have shotgun or the front seat or whatever seat in the car. And they come up to you and there's, you come to the car and there's a ruckus going on about this one and that one and who's going to what. And, and you're like, what happened? And you're like, well, Susie said that I could have the front seat. Susie, she, she promised. And you're like, okay, Susie, what did you say? 
Did you promise? Well, no. Yes, you did. You promised. You promised. Did you promise? Yeah. Well, I promised, but I promised that he could have the seat someday. Right? And it's like I had one eye twitched and a finger behind my back, and that's our code for it didn't mean anything. Right? That's a childish, funny way of the same heart the Pharisees had, where they were trying to twist around things to get away with not upholding things that they had sworn to. Let's look at the next one. He says, you obey the tithe right down to your spices, but you don't obey the more important teaching of the law about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And again, he, he's essentially telling them, you're horrible at obeying the law is really what he's telling them. He's like, great. On the one hand, you make a big scene of obeying the law right down to your spices. Now, I imagine this, like probably a lot of you have like the spice cabinet at home or the drawer that's got, you know, your cumin and cinnamon and basil and the, all those other ones that you never use that nobody knows why they're there. You, and you bring all those. It's like the, the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they would bring their spice drawer to the temple and they would divvy up the salt shaker. Here's 90% of the salt over here. Here's 10%. That goes to the temple. Here's 10% of the cumin. And it was like making a big scene that they would tie right down to their spices. He was exaggerating the point. And yet, you won't give an ounce of your time or energy to actually help anybody else. He's calling them out. He's trying to help them see and hear this point that obedience in one area of your life doesn't make up for disobedience in another area of your life. Let's look at the next, uh, the next two are related. So five and six, this sort of covers both of them. Uh, you care about outside appearances, but inside you're full of greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and wickedness. In both of these, he's given them examples, uh, physical pictures like a cup that's really clean on the outside, but inside it's full of mold and nasty stuff like that coffee cup you forgot about for a year. He's like that, that's the picture, but the outside's clean, whoopee. And he gives him another picture of like a whitewashed tomb, a, a burial tomb that's clean and beautiful and pretty on the outside, but inside it's full of dead bones. And he's trying to give him this image. He's trying to call to account with them that you're all about external appearances. You care about what people think about you from the outside. At the beginning, like he said, you love it when they come up to you going, Rabbi, Rabbi. Like, oh boy, look who's in town. The special guy's here. He's at such and such. You know, you like the best seat at the restaurant. You care what people think about how you look. You care what people think about how you present yourself. But inside, you're rotten and wicked. And you're these hypocrites. Let's look at the last one. He says, you go on about how you would never have done what your ancestors did, but you're just as guilty as them and your actions show it. Here's what's happening. Imagine uh, modern for us, a, a, a picture to help you, is like uh, Veterans Day and Memorial Day when you go and um, decorate the cemeteries and people honor veterans that have passed before us and we put flags out and you go and you clean up the cemetery and it's a way of showing respect for those that passed before us in, in service. They would do the same thing, exaggerated, with the tombs of the prophets. The prophets that had come before them, Isaiah, Zechariah, Nathan, they would go and they would decorate their tombs. They would clean them all up. They would decorate them as a sign of respect and honor. And while they were doing this stuff, they would talk amongst each other saying things like, 
oh boy, if we would have lived back when the, then when the prophets lived, we would have never put them to death the way our ancestors did it. If I would have been there then, I would have never done what they did. And Jesus calls them out and says, your very own actions right now are condemning you of guilt, the same guilt that your ancestors were guilty of. He says, I send you teachers, we send you wise men, we send you prophets, you chase some from town to town, you flog some, you jail some, you crucify some, your very own actions convict you of the guilt you said you wouldn't have done had you been there. And he goes on to tell them, not only are they convicted of the guilt of this, but he says they are going to be guilty of all the righteous blood that's ever been shed. And it's going to happen within their generation. Jesus ends up finishing up these woes, this kind of calling out of the Pharisees with uh, what's called a lament. And it's like a basically him just... with a sadness of heart, kind of a brokenhearted statement at the end of this where he looks out to Jerusalem and he's like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, how I've always longed to, to take care of you, to protect you, to bring you in like a mother hen would bring her chickens and, and, and you know, fold them in under her wings and take care of them and to protect them from, from her enemies. He's like, I've longed to do that for you, but you don't listen. You won't repent. You're not getting it. He's like, there's only one way this is going to end for you. And so the day continues, and we're going to pick back up in Matthew 24, verses uh, 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple, and he was walking away when his disciples come up to him to call attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And he's prophesying about a thing that's going to happen in the not too distant future from their time when Rome would actually conquer Jerusalem and physically decimate the temple and the temple mount and literally throw stone from stone. And if you've seen a lot of the pictures uh, over the years that uh, Aaron and Marty have shared or if you've ever been there or looked it up yourself, like as the archaeologists have dug it out and excavated, it literally looks like a giant went in there and just like swept all these stones off and there's just like piles of what look like little rocks but they're, you know, bus-sized stones tossed off and that's what he was talking about and it says as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately and they said tell us uh, when will this happen what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age now before we dissect that a little bit I want to help you I want to help you just keep tracking with me like physically how this day was unfolding he starts in the temple mount They leave the temple mount and they're walking outside of it and they see buildings and so guess what they talk about buildings because that was what was going on around them and they have this this discussion then they leave there and they walk like for us right now to give you a frame of reference for the distances and stuff it would be like leaving SEL walking out over here down past the apartments to that creek in the bottom over there where the bridge goes down then crossing the creek and going up towards Pullman High School That gives you sort of a ballpark idea of like the distance and the geography. It's not a huge distance. So they leave the temple, they walk through the Kidron Valley, they go up the other side of the hill, and the other side of the hill is called the Mount of Olives. It's not a giant mountain, it's just a hill to us. We're familiar with those. And so 
he gets there and they say to him, like, tell us when all these things are going to happen. How do we know? And how he answers them is some of the most confusing scripture for modern day believers that there is in the Bible. And if you were here through the, through the Revelation series, um, you're better educated than probably the vast majority of Christians when it comes to understanding end times because we unpacked a lot of that stuff. But essentially what he says to him is, it's not for you to know the hour or the day. Don't concern yourself with when it's going to end. And he goes on to tell him some parables about virgins and talents and, and the heart behind the parables, the the emphasis of the parables was to be focused on being faithful with where you're at, irregardless of when it's going to end. And the focus of the parables, the, the meaning of the parables was to help them understand that, that you won't know the time when it's going to end, but if it comes, when it comes, to be found faithfully loving God and loving other people. Like in the Revelation series, I, I had talked about it like this. Like the idea is that we don't get caught up worrying about when Christ is going to come back so much as that we hope we get caught red-handed being a Christian when that day is, right? And so he goes through all these things to him. And then he goes and talks to his disciples and he tells them about uh, a room in Jerusalem and a house where they're gonna have the Passover meal together. And he gives them some special instructions about how to find it and who to look for. And so they take off to go back across the valley, down from the Pullman High School, through the creek, up to the other side, to go back over here to go find this room that he was talking about. Meanwhile, about the very same time, the chief priests and the elders of the town are secretly meeting with Caiaphas, the high priest, in his house. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, remember how Marty told us to think about like the high priest and the Sanhedrin? He told us to think of them a little bit like the mafia, like the religious mafia of the time. These were not good godly guys. These were corrupt, broken, evil people. And that's what's going on in this house. There's this, there's this mafia-type meeting with people that are meeting with the high priest. They're having conversations behind closed doors, secretly plotting, trying to figure out how do we get rid of this Jesus? And not only how do we get rid of him, but how do we off him quietly? so that there's not a big riot or an upheaval. Like, like if, if we can't do it publicly. We can't do it in the square. We can't do it when he's at the temple. That'll cause too many problems for us. But how do we get rid of him in a way that nobody knows? So that's going on. Back to the disciples. They're headed to the Jerusalem to find this room, all except one, who it seems has slipped away and somehow we see that he's meeting up with some of the chief priests and he's working out a plan. He's working out a plan to figure out how to force his way of how he thinks this thing should unfold. He's working out a plan to push his agenda into action. Let's pick it up in uh, Matthew 26 and see what's going on. It says, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out from 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
Now, Iscariot is a zealot's last name. And so it's probable that Judas was a zealot. Now, we got to remember the zealots were like the ultra-conservative religious people of the time. Like the super-extremo Christians. Like not just the sort of go-to-church, these were like five-day-a-week church people. Judas was probably in that category. Judas, making a deal with the high priest, probably had a lot to do with him trying to promote, trying to force his own agenda. He was trying to figure out a way to to force Jesus to assert his kingdom, to like fast forward the plans of this Messiah being the king the way that Judas and many others thought Jesus was supposed to be the king. It was like, what if we put him into a situation where all of a sudden he was going to get arrested? Surely he'll call on a legion of angels. Surely there'll be this uh, army of angels or army from distant lands that God brings and that will overthrow Rome, will overthrow the, the corrupt religious rulers of the day, and Jesus' kingdom will be ushered in sooner than later. Let's see how it plays out. Matthew 26, 20 says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, so they're still in the upper room finishing the meal. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. It's got to be one of the most awkward, weird, stress-inducing things that could happen at a dinner conversation, right? Jesus, with 12 guys that he's been doing life with for years, who know each other inside out, quirks and everything, and Jesus is saying, somebody here is going to betray me. They're all stressed and worried about it, like, oh, I hope none of I don't want to be the one that messes up. And the one that says, I hope it's not me, he calls him out right in front of everybody. And you know what we hear happens next? They all get up and leave together. They get up and they leave together as a whole group and they go to Gethsemane and then as they get there, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John off to the side a little bit more remote and private by himself and it's late in the day and he tells them that, that, that the hour is coming that's going to be really important. Like what's about to happen is super, super significant. Like of all the things they've talked about, of all the lessons they've, they've had, the thing that's on the verge is big. Please stand watch. Like, like don't lose it. I, I need to go talk to the Father. And I've always looked at this passage over the years and, and kind of looked at them and sort of looked down on them. Like, how could they not stay awake? I mean, like Jesus gave them this, this big old exhortation about how important it is. And the next thing you know, they fall asleep. But when you like walk through the path of the day, like this was a long day. These guys worked up cougar calves, right? Through the day, back and forth over the valley, hiking all over the place, stressful situations, physically stressful, emotionally exhausting. They were a part of some hard conversations and they just had a big meal. 
I'm like, okay, I probably would have fell asleep too. So he goes and he prays. He comes back, he finds him sleeping. He calls him out. He goes back to pray some more. He comes back, he finds him sleeping again. And he's telling him how, like, he's just like, you've got to get with it. Like, get with the program. This, this is important. What is about to happen is the Son of Man is on, on the verge of being handed over to the hands of sinners. This is important. And as they're talking, Judas comes back on the scene. But he's not alone. Let's see how it works, how it plays out. In Matthew 26, 47, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. He said, the one that I kiss is the man, that's the one to arrest. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus Judas said, uh, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus replied to him, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear, and, and Jesus calls out, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how would the scripture be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus looks and says to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have to come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you never arrested me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the, decided, the disciples uh, deserted him and fled. They left. Judas, coming to terms with what was actually going on, realizing that his plan was, was actually not coming to fruition, overcome with guilt, overcome with shame, grabs the bag of silver, goes back to the temple, throws the money in the temple, and the scriptures say that he goes and hangs himself. Couldn't come to terms with, couldn't live with what he had done. That it didn't go the way he thought it would go. And for us sitting here today, like it's easy to go, yeah, I'm trusting God that it's going to end when it's going to end and I'm not trying to make plans for how the end of the world is going to come and all that stuff. But the reality is like our plans creep in a little more than we maybe realize sometimes. Maybe we're not talking about like how we were going to usher in the return of the king. But maybe our plans are more about like how we want our life to end. How we want our plans to come about. Like how do we want our retirement to be? What do we want our home to be like? What do we want our kids to grow up and be like? What job do we think we need to have or have to have? Like our plans for ourselves can become so important for us and, can, and we can have such an agenda for them and such a, a, a plan and a level of importance on them that they become more important than God's plan for this world. 
and that we, be, we become less focused on God's plan for redeeming people to himself and, and reconciling with people and restoring relationship to lost and hurting people, and we become totally submerged and surrounded in what our retirement plan is going to look like and how our end of our life is going to be. Until one day we find that we're brokenhearted and, and, and pierced to the heart, convicted, full of guilt and shame that, like Judas, we tried to promote our own agenda and in the end, it, it was empty. It didn't work out. Like, our plans aren't God's plans. So during this season of Lent, as we're talking about what it looks like and what it means to um, give things up, but also to let things die. Maybe it's a time for us to remember, like, what do we need to let die? What kind of plans do we need to put to death that, that we have that are not in line with God's plans? That's why it's so important that we take communion every week is because we get to be reminded that God has a plan and that through his plan, not only are we going to be okay in the end, but we can have relationship with him today. We get to be reminded each and every week that God's got it under control. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to take communion together, and the ushers are going to pack, uh, pass the buckets first down the middle. If you would drop your cards in those, and if you have tithe or offering you want to drop in them, that's fine as well. And then they're going to pass out the communion trays. And when they pass out communion, we have... Uh, if you're new here or haven't been here maybe in a long time, just to be reminded, like we have what we call an open table when we do communion. That just means that anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us can have communion. You don't have to be a member to take communion. We would love for you to take communion with us. And so as they pass out the elements, um, go ahead and hold on to them, and then we're going to take communion together here in just a few minutes. So as soon as those buckets are done, they'll go ahead and start passing out communion, and we'll hold those and take them together in just a second. While they're doing that, in your notes is uh, the implications. They're going to be up on the screen too. Let's take a look at those. I'm going to grab that. Thank you. Let's take a look at that first one. Ultimately, even though Judas was one of the 12, he was no better than the Pharisees because of his need to push his own version of how circumstances should unfold. Like, here's Judas, one of the disciples who was with Jesus all this time. And in the end, he was no better than the Pharisees that Jesus was calling out because like Judas, they twisted God's plans to be their plans. And he, he called them to the carpet for it. Let's look at the next one. Lent is an invitation to let our agenda die so that resurrection can take its fullest place in our hearts and in the world. We talk a lot about this in this Lent series about like putting stuff to death, like letting parts of you die. It's a really abstract, weird thing to say. Like we sort of get the general gist of it, but to really like own it and like comprehend, it's a weird thing to comprehend. Let me tell you how I'm processing it, what it looks like for me. Do you know how sometimes your strength, uh, the things that you say like you're really good at can also become like one of your biggest weaknesses? 
if it's sort of like overboard. For me, I've always been really analytical, really good at like seeing through strategies and processes and looking at things and figuring out how to make them work faster, better, more efficient. Like it served me well in the construction industry. But to the extreme, overboard, it becomes this, it becomes me just being critical all the time of everything. Like always looking at how could I make that better? What could they have done differently? What would have made it smarter? What would have made it faster? What would have made it, and it's just like, I drive my, my brain, I literally drive myself insane sometimes. Because I'm like, I'm looking at a restaurant menu, critiquing it, the, like how the menu is made. It's like, shut up, self. <laughs> right? So for me, the conversation I'm having with God is like, God, help put that to death in me. Like, I would love to genuinely have Christ reborn in me in that way, like resurrected Jesus stuff in me, that when I see people and things, I see them the way Jesus sees them, not with my critical eye. And that I don't have to work at it, that it would just be part of me. I'm like, God, help me to be reborn that way, right? That's what my conversation's looking like through this Lent season. Let's look at this last one. There's just one ending to this. God is still in control and we can let go of whatever causes us to want something other than what God is up to in the world. Ultimately, when we start looking at our plans, whether it's retirement or career or family or kids or whatever we've got about how we want our life to work, if it's not in line with God's plan, if we're not praying about it, talking to godly people and friends about it, and asking how to have our plans submitted to God's plan, like take their rightful place, like that's fine. But if that's not the case, we got to put that stuff to death and let it go. It's so cool that we take communion every week because it helps us remember that God had a plan. That God had a plan and made a way for us to have relationship with him through faith in his son. Through the power of Jesus' resurrection, we can not only have salvation and eternity in heaven, but we can have daily relationship with God the Father. We can have the helper, the Holy Spirit with us day in and day out, the encourager, the comforter, the giver of life through the power of the resurrection. And we remember every week what Jesus did for us on the cross as we take communion. We remember that on that night that we talked about today, in that upper room where he knew he was gonna be betrayed, that very same meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it and he told them to, as often as they eat this, to remember that it represents his body given for them. In the same way, he took the cup and he said that this was the cup that represented the, the new covenant of his blood shed for them. And as often as we get together, let's drink it in remembrance. God, we love you. And we just thank you so much that you do have a plan. God, thanks that you didn't leave us hanging. Not only just uh, uh, tough it out until heaven, but that you made a way for us to be in relationship with you, but you also made a way for us to have your Holy Spirit, Lord, to have you with us, literally, actually with us, to walk through us, uh, walk with us through each and every day. God, thanks for being a God that is willing to go to great lengths to love your people. 
We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 